Welcome to the last weekend of the year at Timberline Church. And here we are together again, you and I. It seems to be a tradition. An awful tradition. <laughs> Think of it as a trip to the dentist. Uncomfortable but necessary, right? When I was young, I couldn't wait to get older, right? Somewhere along the line, I wished I hadn't been in such a hurry. Some of you can relate, many of you can relate. Some of us in this room are young. What is young? Well, that depends on from where you're looking. But let's just say under 25, 25 or young, 30 or young, whatever. I'm going to talk like an old guy today. And there will be a temptation if you're young to tune out. And I want to encourage you to tune in because we're going to talk some about what goes on in our brains. And if you can learn some practices earlier, you won't have to say you're sorry to so many people for being a jerk like me. Okay? My mom used to teach me uh, scriptures when I was young. My mom turned 77 yesterday, and uh, she would have me memorize scriptures, and one of the first ones was, it was in the King James she would teach them to me, so I have a lot of scriptures memorized in the King James Version. It was 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're going to read it together in the New Living Translation, much more modern but in the King James Version, it's, it's this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she, but it says he, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Well, when I was five, six years old, I was new. But I grew up. I did some wrong, and some wrong was done to me. I learned how to be angry and jealous and lust and be petty. And I started piling up regrets. If anyone ever says to you, I have no regrets, <laughs> don't believe them. Um, but uh, then I wished that I could be new, a new creature. Maybe a bird. But in the newer translations, it says person. You ever wish you could be new or someone else? Or go back. I'm going to read what Paul wrote to some new believers. Brand new people to faith following Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.16, the sentences before what I memorized. So... We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely 
from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. But I still remember. I still do this. I still think. New person. Now I want to read what Jesus said to his disciples. And having in mind that the, the disciples of Jesus may have been teenagers. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I bet you've heard this before. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Listen up. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Isn't that cute? What a nice little illustration. Now move away, kid. We got big people stuff to do. I know how to be childish. Do I know how to be childlike? Do I think about this? And then the, the third scripture is, is one that really uh, very much resonates or relates or convicts me because Jesus is speaking to a man of, of religious education and standing. I have a religious ed education and I'm a pastor at a church that, that is, uh, is thought well of and I'm on staff and here I am standing here, albeit... This, you know, I mean, I'm standing here talking to you. So, this guy, this Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So we have three different sayings, three different pictures, metaphors of spiritual awakening. New person, like a child, and born again. What has been your experience? What has been my experience? I was sort of became a Christian when I was, before I was in school. New person, like a child, and born again. I was a child. These are three ways of thinking about what this is we're trying to do or become. How is that going? Like a child, born again, new person. What if we took it seriously? What it, more than just a nice little illustration? What, what would it be like if I took this to heart, wrote it down, thought about it, practiced it? What if I thought about it every day, first thing? What would it mean today to be new? What would it mean today to go to that place, to that relationship 
like a child, humble, open. What would it mean? What would it look like? So on the back of your bulletin, if you, if you know how to write and you are writing, fill this in. What would it be, I'd be like if I were born again? Now we're thinking about it figuratively, but even literally. What would it be like to start over? What would it be like if I were born again, became new, was like a child? So I carry this around with me for whatever number of years it is now. I'm in my 53rd year, but maybe 40-some years I've been carrying around this promise, this, this image, this idea. So I waited to become new. And I grew up and I became uh, selfish or angry or moody or I failed again. And I waited and I prayed. And I waited and I would pray, Lord, change me if you make me new. And then I would think the same thing. And in some cases, act the same way. The scriptures and Jesus said I was new, born again, but too much of the time I felt like the same old Darren. I was still too often what I didn't want to be. Feel me? Like, if you really don't want me to eat a lot, stop, help me, make me not like him, the donuts and stuff. Make me not, make me like that person, and then I'll be nice to him. Change me. Why do I still say things I regret? Why do I still get angry or petty or jealous? Why don't I love better? Why don't I forgive quicker? Why do I still feel insecure? Why don't I think differently, more like Jesus? Why when someone cuts me off in traffic, do I want to go up there and glare at them, or do I want them to get in an accident and get, go in the ditch? Why, how, how come so many people still annoy me? How come I can just be sailing along, really like, man, I'm, I'm like Jesus today, and then one person says one thing, one thing happens, and boom, it knocks me off my, it's like trying to sit on a yoga ball, man being like Jesus what does it mean or how can we how can I see these words come true in my own life to be a new person to be born again to become like a child we read the stories in the scriptures we pray we go to church but do we change change I'm 66 man I I don't think no but what is life if it's not growth if it is not change when we find something like, oh my gosh, I still do that, maybe there should be something of joy, like, oh, I get to grow. I know, it's no fun, but it is fun. It can be. Earlier this year, I was listening to a, a podcast. It was an interview of a lady named Jill Bolt-Taylor. She's a Harvard-educated neuroanatomist. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's a brain scientist. That's her. She's holding a brain, somebody's brain. I think I don't know if it's real, like a real brain. Hey, give me my brain back. Wait, you can't talk. You don't have a brain. She's a brain scientist. On the morning of December 10, 1996, she woke up. She was 37 years old. She woke up with a headache. She felt funny. Her perception of the world was weird. Her brain felt sluggish or slow. Her right arm went limp. Being a brain scientist and a, a quirky lady, she, she said I was fascinated to observe my own brain. She, and she was conscious and fully aware, but she had a pretty fair idea what was going on being a brain scientist. 
and she knew that she was in some trouble. So with what concentration she could muster, she couldn't even read numbers. She started losing something and she couldn't even like read the numbers, but she remembered the shapes of numbers somehow. And so she, with her left hand, punched in the numbers to call a colleague, a colleague. And she said to when the person answered, this is Jill, I need help. At least that's what she thought she said. What he heard was, and then he answered back. And she said, it sounded like my golden retriever. But he knew from her tone that she was in trouble and she knew from his tone that he knew and that he was going to help her. Her brain was bleeding. A blood vessel in the left hemisphere of her brain had erupted. She was having a stroke. Within a span of four hours, she could not speak, read, walk, write, or remember. For the next five weeks before and after surgery to remove a golf ball-sized blood clot from under her skull, she lived in a silent mind. Her left hemisphere went quiet. She could not speak. She did not know who she was. No brain chatter telling her that she was Jill Taylor, a Harvard-trained neuroanatomist. She never lost consciousness. On the second day, her mom, Gigi, came into her hospital room. Dr. Taylor didn't know it was her mom, much less maybe what a mother was. Gigi climbed onto the bed beside her, held her, and rocked her. Taylor said, one day I was her Harvard doctor daughter, and the next I was an infant in her arms again, like a child, born again. When she went home for the next five weeks, she couldn't talk or read, walk, write, feed herself, wipe her own mouth. Her left hemisphere, which is, is, the, is the part of the brain of where we, we formulate and deliver language and receive it. The right hemisphere, which is conceptual, uh, big ideas, more philosophical, deeper understanding, intuition. You know, when you say, my gut is telling me, or when you're in a situ we're in a situation and we just sense something. And then our left side is the side that takes that and delivers messages and receives messages in the form of language. But the right hemisphere, so she, everyone's coming in and leaving, and there she is, like just drooling and stuff. And people are feeling sorry for her. And, but what she said, that it, the right hemisphere of her brain was awake and, and she was perceiving the deeper things. She had no sense of identity. She sat in silence, but inside her silent mind, Taylor said she felt beauty, peace, and wholeness. She would sit on the couch, she said. I would sit there with these people looking at me with pity, drooling, with this goofy grin on my face, because I was alive and I felt oneness and wholeness and peace. 
No left brain function. No attachment to ego. Didn't care what people thought. And that's what really caught me when she said, I didn't care what anybody thought. I had no attachment to my ego or my image or how I should perform or what I should be at any moment. And I thought, you're free. Helpless, silent on the outside, and peaceful and whole on the inside. It was two and a half weeks post-surgery before the brain chatter started back up. She had to learn to read and write again. All her science was gone. She had to learn her name. They had to tell her her own story. She said, that person that I was for 37 years was gone. I lost all of that. That person died. I was going to be someone new. We grieved her. We talked about her, she said. And then she said this, I got to be reborn. Well, to a kid who grew up with this born again talk, I thought, that's interesting. Now science is starting to, she's a scientist and Jesus said that. But what, how are these two going to come together? I, um, I remember that scripture I've been carrying around for 52 years about being born again. Dr. Taylor said, the slate was wiped clean. Now, when you think about what's in our brain, the memories, what's going on in your brain right now? So many things uh, in our brains right now, are, what, things are, all these things that are going on, uh, feelings of shame, feelings of superiority, inferiority, regret, hope, despair. And a lot of it is attached to what we have produced or created or who we are perceived to be. And she said, I had none of that. No attachment to that. And yet, I felt fully alive. So she said, I was going to have to figure out what to do with my second life. The well-built ego was gone. The self-image. The power that certain people or titles or expectations that were upon me, the power people had over me was gone. She said, my mom wasn't going to be able to manipulate me. It wasn't going to work. All the emotional baggage was gone. And now I was going to get to decide what I was going to take on and what I was going to leave behind. And so I got to decide. I was new. Born again, one thought at a time. And she said, I, I started uh, experiencing thoughts. And I would just take the thought and say, how does that feel in me? And if I didn't like it, I would just not carry it. She said, you have to remember, we are not our thoughts. My brain, your brain, is a bunch of cells. And she said, I look at those cells as a bunch of little children. And some of those children I like, and I want to play with them. Some of them I don't. I don't want to send them off. So I choose which of those thoughts, those cells, those kids I want to play with. One by one they came, and, and she would pay attention. How does this feel? I decided, she said, to take control of my thoughts. And then I thought of another scripture I heard. Science and scripture. Interesting, eh? And uh, a scripture that I learned a long time ago where Paul wrote, take every thought captive 
Take every thought captive. Own your thoughts. Well, that's a pain. That's tedious to take every thought captive. I mean, I'm sorry I can't come to work today. I have too many thoughts to take captive. Hey, it is tedious to take every thought captive. But you know what's worse? Cleaning up my messes after I've been a jerk or said something stupid or acted out because I didn't think about this thought and whether I, whether I wanted to play with it or not. And the interviewer stopped her and she said, it's great. You feel free. You don't care what people think anymore. You're not going to be, uh, 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 you're not going to carry that emotional baggage anymore. You get, to, you get to filter these thoughts. But the interviewer asked, well, how do we get some of this without having to have our, our own stroke? Science tells us that our thoughts are created by a tiny group of cells about the size of a peanut sitting in the left hemisphere of our brains. Now, I just said peanuts. And uh, some of the men in this room are thinking about peanuts and those toffee-coated peanuts. Those are delicious, aren't they? I could eat those all day. So let's just give a moment to say, yes, we do, we do like peanuts. But let's come back now, shall we? See how our brains are? That's the brains, man. <laughs> Homer Simpson was right. All right. Our thoughts are created by a tiny group of cells about the size of a peanut sitting in the left hemisphere of our brains. A group of cells designed to tell us stories that make sense out of our world or make us feel some control when we're losing control. The storytelling part of our brain that says this is who you are and this is why this is happening and this is they, and it, it gives us some sense of meaning or justification or comfort or control. And many of us, many of us at some times at least let those little, that little group of cells, that little peanut ruin our lives. She said, you are not your thoughts. To an extent, we can Create the life we want to create by what we do with those thoughts when they come in times of sadness or anger. Let's take anger, for example. Um, something happens at work. That person did that again. Someone cuts us off in traffic. Traffic's always a good example. Uh, something with a kid or a spouse or a parent. But a person... Some people have more or less power over us, so it could be a person close to us, or it could be something random. Let's say, so, and it happens, okay? And it triggers anger, and science tells us that it takes 90 seconds from the moment you feel that trigger happen, and you feel yourself starting to get angry, it takes 90 seconds for the chemicals to flush through your body and flush completely out of you. Anger, how's that feel? Do you want to play with that? So, to kind of as, well, as an example, you and I can think of times something happened, profound or not, and we're in instantly angry, okay? Men get this. Ah, so do you ladies. You, we know, we know you too. So, have you ever had something happen and you wanted to react, you wanted to say something, you wanted to make a gesture? Anger. But uh, Pastor Derry was with you, or Pastor Derry was, or for some reason, circumstantially, I or you, we were not able to act out that anger in that moment. And, and because of that, 
time passes, and then a, a couple of minutes later, you go, man, I was really mad, but now I see that it, wasn't, it didn't warrant that. I'm not mad anymore. That's the chemicals in the circuitry being flushed out of our system in 90 seconds. Well, the, of course the question is, why do we harbor anger for days or weeks or years? And the answer is because we keep rethinking the same thought that triggers the circuitry that reruns the loop. See? We hook right into the hostility and run it again, choosing to rerun the circuitry. And if we've been doing that for years, that's a long time for that circuitry to be running. And the fact of the matter is, there's a pleasure in anger. There's an energy in anger. So when we have justifiable anger, someone actually did us wrong, we, and it's justifiable, it gives us energy to, to retell it to ourselves, to retell it to other people, and the loop just keeps running. Dr. Taylor and Jesus say, pay attention to your life. Take every thought captive. Choose not to run the circuitry. Become new. Be born again. I've spent a lot of my life praying for God to do what God has created us to do. I've prayed for a better version of me. I've waited for God to change me. And we talk a lot about in, in faith about change comes from the inside out. I think that has created some laziness in me, in us possibly, about the possibility of change coming from the outside in. The practice. The brain that God gave us to change. That place, that amazing, exasperating, powerful piece of God-created machinery called the brain. When we choose not to run the circuitry, when we choose to use that, that God-given machinery to think new things, to say, I'm not playing with that thought anymore, I'm not playing with that kid anymore, then the Holy Spirit of the universe, the breath of the universe, the, of the creator God, adds its wind to our sail. Practice and pray. At times I've been lazy. I'm not saying praying is lazy. It's just not enough. He has given us all we need to become the daughters and sons of God. We were designed to be. Pray and practice. As someone sort of once said, be the change you want to see. Stop waiting for God to change you, for God to change me. Let's take ownership of our lives. Let's play, pay attention to the stories our brains are telling us and tell those thoughts, those kids, it's a new game. I'm not playing with you anymore. Count to 90 when you have to. Turn off the old circuitry and start running the new circuitry. Practice who you want to be, new person, born again like a child. The interviewer asked Dr. Taylor a question. So she was, she was 37, this highly esteemed teaching, neuroanatomist, brain scientist doctor, and, and the interviewer asked, how have you changed? How have you changed? And we might ask it this way, again, Takeaway, what might it look like to be born again, become new like a child? Hey, we already wrote that down. I know, but the science says it's a good idea. If you write it down, multiple repetition is good. What might it look like to be born again, become new? Remember, Dr. Lee said, I, I was, it was like I was born again. 
So the interviewer says, how have you changed? He says, well, you know, I, they had to tell me a lot. I, I kind of forgot. But what my friends and family tell me is this. And this is what I want us to write down. What might it look like to be born again, become new, like a child? I'm going to read through these four. And then I'm going to come back and unpack them a little bit, and then we'll be done. My friends, after this, told me that I was more fun. I'm more fun. My friends and family told me I have more time. They told me I'm more compassionate. And they told me I'm more generous. More fun, more time, more compassionate, more generous. What if we became that? More fun. I don't think more fun means that if you're a person who, who doesn't really have, a, a kind of born, don't have that great of a sense of humor, that you all of a sudden become funny. That could be really awkward. <laughs> like, I'm funny now. I don't think more fun means that you have to become the funniest guy at the party or the girl who always has a joke or plays a bunch of games. It could. I think it means we might take ourselves a little less seriously. That we might think about how can we bring joy to people? There's a, there's a lot of anxiety. Some of you are in stressful, pressure-filled situations and things are hanging in the balance. Our world is delivering to us a lot of anxiety. I'm not saying we minimize that or stick our heads in the dirt, but those situations, how can we bring joy? What can I do? We talk a lot at the end of the year about I'm gonna lose some weight next year, but what if we didn't just lose physical weight? What if we set out to lose spiritual weight? I'm not saying we don't take spirituality seriously, but what if we became lighter? What if in those moments when we were taking ourselves too seriously, we just stopped the circuitry and said, Lord, I'm taking myself too seriously. Help me. I am your child. It's okay. I don't have to be more. Help me. How may I bring joy here? More time. You can't add time, they say. They also say, thing about time is time isn't really real. And I know some seasons of life are busy. There just isn't much left over. Some people are legitimately super busy. Young families, students with jobs. But let's take a look at this. Am I saying I don't have time when I do because I just want to go watch Netflix or I want to do my thing? Like sometimes have you noticed like we make time for what we want to do? Um, which is good. We need that for, for our own health. But I love it when people come up to me and say, hey, I know you're busy, but, but the fact of the matter is sometimes I'm not. And we let this perception linger because it's thought, well, a busy is kind of esteemed. They must be important. 
do we really, are we really too busy? So just to really take account. What am I doing that's to build my ego and my agenda and just what I want to do? Or And the other, and this, maybe we don't have much margin, but what if we decided to practice the habit of mind to really be there when we're there? Like right now, you've been here this whole time, but you didn't even listen to me. <laughs> what about this prayer? Father, my body is here. But my mind is far away. Let my spirit be here too, right now. Sometimes what our brain needs us to do is to have mantras and prayers, real prayers that we pray to God, but it takes our brain off of our own insecurities, our own worries, and it puts it on the Lord and takes it away from that. And peace comes. That's why people practice prayers sometimes it's just to take to break that circuitry more compassionate the definition of compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others distress together with a desire to alleviate it it is a conscientious entering into the experience of others when other people are in pain or loss we don't have to fix anything it's just a matter of I, of this. Father, I, I am going to now choose to look upon and consider and when possible, act on the behalf of those who are in distress. It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be a lot of time. But a shifting of the mind, running the circuitry of awareness and thoughtfulness and I have found the best thing to do in times when people need compassion sometimes for me is just to be with them. Bring them some food. Share some food. More generous. Generosity is not just the act of giving our resources to another. There are people who give a lot of money to things who aren't necessarily generous. I mean, technically, yes. Not everybody can has a lot of resources to share. It's still possible to be generous. Generosity is a state of mind. It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. Generous thinking is stopping the circuitry. Thoughts about ourselves, stories about ourselves, stories about, about others. It's the stories we write in our heads about other people who anger us or annoy us or cut us off in traffic or behave badly at work or in our homes or at the restaurant. Generosity is when we practice empathy and we don't rush to conclusions about others in our minds. It's when we stop the circuitry of storytelling in our own brains and pray this prayer. Father, I know what I see and I'm tempted to judge right now. Help me, Holy Spirit, to consider that there may be another story going on than what I see. Most often when people are in pain, it comes out in behavior. Those people at work or home that are behaving badly, I'm not saying we put up, it just goes without restraint. But may we be generous in how we see others who look differently, act differently, vote differently than we. More fun, more time, 
more compassionate, more generous. Amen. Close your eyes with me. I'm going to close my eyes. In a moment of reflection, if there's a word from all of this, if there's a thought, speak it to our minds, Holy Spirit. If there's a course of action, show us what it is. I want to invite us all into a prayer. I want to ask you to repeat a prayer. Maybe you're not sure about Jesus, but you're here. And you're open and you've listened. Maybe practice this prayer as a beginning. I want to, I'll, I'll give you the line and then phrase by phrase, let's pray this prayer. Father, I want to change. Father, I want to change. Make me new. Make me new. Like a child. Like a child. Born again. Born again. And I will practice. I will interrupt the circuitry. Have you ever prayed that before? Fill me with your spirit. Amen.